Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom Healy, and we're talking with Tyler Peoples of Peoples Design. This was Season 8, Episode 23, uh, May 5th of 2017 air date. Now, Tyler comes into the Shark Tank asking for $75,000 for 25% of his company. This was a kitchen cooking bowl that did a bunch of stuff and so very handy. Now, I don't cook, I don't spend much time in the kitchen, but if I did, I think this would be a pretty cool product. It was just a bowl that did all kinds of different stuff and had all these little gadgets and it's one of those things that was like, yeah, this should probably be in every kitchen and I have no idea why nothing like this already exists. So, um, Early on in the process, he was making these bowls for $5.80 each and then selling them for $24.95. Had only sold 200 bowls at the time. Again, very, very early, but it was a unique product and probably would be uh, very interesting to a couple of the sharks. Now, uh, he ended up getting a deal with who you think he would have gotten a deal with, Lori. It was $75,000 for 33% of the company. So Tyler's a great guy, really, really cool product. You're going to enjoy this interview. A lot of great lessons here. So let's get to the interview with Tyler. We're here with Tyler Peoples of Peoples Design. Uh, five years ago aired on Shark Tank. So we're, we're hopefully in for quite an update. Uh, Tyler, really appreciate you being with us. And, you know, obviously during your airing, a little bit of your story was covered. Um, but tell us a little bit more about where the idea for the product came from um, and, and the early iterations of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I always worked uh, in restaurant settings um, as a chef. And, you know, a lot of times you had to keep labor costs low. And so whatever you can do by yourself, um, you just do by yourself. And if that means bringing staff in later and doing all the prep work beforehand, um, you know, that, that's what I did. And some jobs are better with two people. For example, if you're making a large batch of something and you have a big mixing bowl, with one hand, you're holding up a bowl and the other hand, you're trying to use a spatula and trying to funnel all the ingredients into a piping bag or something like that. And, um, and that's, the, that's kind of the genesis of that, of that particular idea. Um, because that, that's something I, I had to do by myself every day over and over. And I, I remember one day I was just, I was laying in bed and I was thinking, oh, geez, it seems really silly to like go find somebody to help me with this one little thing, you know? Um, and so then I, I, I have this idea book, actually, I have, I have two books, a little one and a small one. And one is for small ideas and one is for bigger ideas. For some reason, some reason, I thought uh, an adaptation to a mixing bowl was in the big idea category. And so I started like drawing it out, like what would actually work out to save me this, you know, the, these few minutes of running around trying to find somebody to help me hold the bowl, you know? And so that's kind of the genesis of that, of that idea. And where, where did you go to have a prototype built? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so like I said, I, I worked at restaurants. I was just chef, no engineer training, no, you know, um, prototype kind of like, uh, information. So I thought if I was smart and I knew how to engineer a prototype, where would I be? So I thought I would probably be in college. <laughs> so I reached out, <laughs> I reached out to the local uh, university engineering department 
And, you know, I just said, hey, I'd, I'd really like this thing to exist. Um, you guys make prototypes, I assume. If I was smart, what would I do? And, um, and it turns out that they had a little lab there. And this was before 3D printing was a thing that you could do, you know, right now kids do 3D printing, right? But at the time, I think there was only one 3D printer around in, in, in my area. And so they happened to have one. And, um, and so it aired five years ago, but the idea started, you know, several years before that. And so the, the students in the engineering department helped me put together a prototype and put together the um, kind of the, the digital info that goes along with making it. And that's kind of how we started with that. Yeah. And how long did it take from the day you sketched the bowl to the time you had a prototype in your hand? I'll tell you, it's a miracle anything exists in life, you know, like the, the hurdles that anything has to go through, even a mixing bowl, to become a real product. It's incredible. I would say probably I sketched a little picture of a bowl in 2012. Okay. And so, so it took several years. But on the flip side, what if you had an idea and you never even sketched it? You know, like maybe that's like, you know, step two, think of the idea, step one, step two, maybe sketch it. Uh, let's say I never sketched it, then it wouldn't exist at all. So, yeah, and I guess that that's the flip side to it. Well, I, and, think products, I think products exist because of people like you and maybe in a uh, in a small way, people like uh, Tom and I who just don't give up. We're entrepreneurial. We have an idea in our head. We want to see it come to life, but uh, had you had any entrepreneurial uh, training or exploits prior to this? Um, no, just history, just in my family. So my um, my family came here in the 80s and 90s. They immigrated from Colombia, uh, South America, and um, and they owned several businesses. And my great grandmother, she started a little textile firm in the small town she lived in in Colombia. And she made uh, raincoats that sold here in the United States. And this was in the 50s and 60s. And she was a uh, lady entrepreneur. And she, you know, it was kind of a big deal to, she didn't have any training either. She grew up on a farm and, and she had to figure out something to help support her family. So she learned how to sew and that became a business that sold raincoats internationally. And she sold some to Sears in uh, Houston, Texas. And they just uh, later on they moved to Houston, Texas. So, and um, my parents are entrepreneurs. My mom started a cleaning business, and so I think it's kind of um, I don't know if it's a Latin thing, but it is an immigrant thing, you know. And so we came from a line of immigrants, and that's just you just never stopped, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So 2012, you air 2017. Uh, mm -hmm. How how did you find out or apply to Shark Tank or how did they find you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's a lot of ways to get onto Shark Tank. And so pre-Shark Tank, okay, first of all, watching Shark Tank was essentially my business education. So I didn't go to business school. I don't have a business degree, but I did watch Shark Tank a lot. <laughs> and you learn a lot, you know, body language, presentation, what people are looking for, how things go. And so, um, so it's a whole wealth of education there. So pre-Shark Tank, I watched Shark Tank. And I knew I would never have what it takes to get on the Shark Tank because the questions that they ask 
And, um, you know, people have their act together when they get on Shark Tank. And I thought, well, one day if I ever get my act together, you know, then maybe I can present on there. But, <clears throat> and I tried every other avenue, um, expos, writing letters, cold calling companies, trying to get licensing deals. And then um, every now and then somebody would say, gee, have you thought about getting on Shark Tank? And, um, and finally out of desperation, I was like, well, I mean, I've gotten, I've gotten no from everybody else. So what would a no from Shark Tank hurt? You know? And um, so I Googled it, how to get onto Shark Tank. And I went, I guess there was a website and it said, you can just email, you can just apply online, you know? And, um, and so I pulled up the digital form and I just started filling it out. And um, there was a portion where you had to attach a video or attach a photo. And I had such a bad computer at the time. In fact, I was just using a tablet and in the process of trying to attach a photo, I sent an incomplete application. Like it really, I didn't get really very far in the application and it sent automatically. And I got a reply back right away. And the reply said, oh, thank you for your interest in Shark Tank. We get zillions of applications a day. Please do not send any more emails. Something like that, right? And then I was thinking, oh, I never actually sent the application. I totally blew my shot, you know? And I was kind of Googling like, what's the likelihood of getting on a Shark Tank? And it's something like zero. Yeah. <laughs> and then on top of like sending a blank email it's like whatever zero times whatever is you know like that those are my shots um but i kind of remember thinking well you know you still haven't got a no yet and that was the worst case scenario so let's try it again and so i pulled up that application and i, and I filled it out completely this time and i sent it through and i got no response back at all so I thought, okay, well, that was that. Um, something like 10 days later or a week, around 10 days later, I got a call from a producer and they, you know, they said, they had told me their name and, uh, and I was shocked. I was just on the phone and maybe she could hear the shock in my voice. And she said, didn't you send an email? You know, did you fill this out? Is this you? I, yeah, I did. Just like shocked you got the email. <laughs> You know, so um, yeah, so that so that's what happened. I didn't go to casting. I didn't. Um, I don't know. And in fact, it seemed like I didn't even send them an email. But I mean, I did obviously. But um, do you have a do you have any knowledge of what compelled them to pick you and, and invite you onto the show? Did they tell you? No, I, I don't. You know, there, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. You know, several layers back and. I don't know who makes those decisions and I don't know who read that email. Um, but I mean, that's, that's what I don't know. I just love that. Uh, Tom, I know you love that too. Um, Tyler gets, uh, sends an incomplete app and they say, please don't send any more emails. Oh, so I guess I'll just, you know, ignore that completely <laughs> refill out the application and send it again. I just love that. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a real miracle, and then um, and then it seemed like right away, you know. So then you you have to do a few more things and send in a script and you know send in a little video, and then um, but it wasn't long after that that I went out there for the show. But it all happened pretty quick, and so sometimes I think, well, maybe there was a scheduling conflict with another entrepreneur, maybe something last minute happened, but I I guess I'll never know.
and you air five five seventeen. What happened those first forty eight hours after airing for you? Yeah, the first um, you know so so you get some advice you know because a lot of people are going to look at your website. Um, you know, some hundreds of thousands of people are going to look at your website. So we got the website uh, pressure tested to see if it could handle that traffic. And it, it fit the uh, recommended, you know, margin. And so we thought we were good, but like instantly the website crashes and we're just working to like bring the website back up. And um, I never, when it, when it aired, I didn't watch the episode. I just remember we were trying to like, oh no, the website instantly crashed. Like I try to work on that. And then, um, and then it was over. And you know, so I'm, I was never used to getting like tons and tons of emails, but it's something like, I don't know, thousands of emails just all of a sudden. And people saying, hey, I saw that. I like the product, people ordering. Um, so to wake up and you have like thousands of emails. Oh, wow. You know, like, no, no, that's something. By the time you aired, where were you available? Were you just on your website? Were you on Amazon? Where were you selling the product by the time you made it there? Um, so my, my goal was always to do a licensing deal because I never, I never stopped being a chef, you know? And so I thought, um, you know, if I, if I can place my product in a handful of small stores to prove interest, and, um, you know, I, you know, I can't compete with anybody who makes more than one product, you know, uh, like a Rubbermaid or something like that. So maybe my best bet is to license, you know, uh, license a product to a company that has a whole suite of kitchen products and they maybe just want to add an innovative thing. So <clears throat> I was just available locally and online on my own website. What can you share with us about the deal? Did it go through? Did it not go through? It did go through. <clears throat> and um, so it went through on, on the show, you know, that kind of dramatized it a bit. Um, and it looked like it looked like it was something like um, $75,000 for 33%, you know, something like that. Um, and th there's a due diligence process afterwards. They want to, you know, check things out. And we ended up doing a licensing agreement. And so she would take over the manufacturing and the packaging and the distribution. And essentially what I was really hoping for is that um, somebody who knew what they were doing would just take this idea. And then, you know, I just receive royalties. And so that's, that's what we ended up doing. And that's how things still to this day are? Um, that's how they are up into, you know, there, there's a certain threshold of, sales that they want to maintain before they kind of like uh, sunset a product and there was this bit where um the cost to manufacture it changed because of tariff kind of uh the, the lay of the landscape changed and it just wasn't the same margins and so some some deals that may have been in the pipe works for brick and mortar stores just didn't fit that kind of like keystone you know, like kind of like a sweet spot that stores are looking for. Um, and that was kind of like the next evolution. It, it, it ended up being on QVC um, for a couple of seasons. And then the next evolution would have been brick and mortar stores. But at that point, um, they, Lori reached out and she said, you know what, the numbers aren't working out. Um, we're going to pause the brick and mortar store and we'll kind of you know, 
in the licensing agreement. And you never stopped working at the uh, facility you were at? Are you still there? Yeah, I still, yeah. So I was working at a homeless shelter and I'm still working at a homeless shelter. Yeah, it's, it was really, I mean, the scope of what you shared five years ago is pretty significant. Has that, I, I'd assume that's only grown since? Yes. Um, so we, you know, we, so yeah, the, the major issues that we tackle at the homeless shelter are the same. You know, people are still in need and, you know, people are struggling. And, um, and so, so that's a lot the same. But a lot of what we've ended up doing at the rescue mission is very innovative. Um, we've really gotten into the world of social enterprise. And uh, we started actually a culinary school that uh, we, we train folks that stay with us and folks that are engaged in our uh, addiction recovery. We train them in culinary arts and how to do how to do kitchen work in a sober way. And uh, we also run a catering business that helps generate revenue back to the mission. And so in, in the time since um, Shark Tank aired till now, um, I mean, that's really been a, a huge thing in my life is focusing on uh, the social enterprise at the rescue mission. And I'd have to imagine being in a facility like that. I mean, it's just, it's very entrepreneurial because you, you have very, very limited resources and you know, you're trying to do a, a quite a few different things with those limited resources. To me, that's better entrepreneurial training than, uh, hey, I got a great idea. I'm going to go raise $100 million and build a big enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because it's, it is very entrepreneurial because you're addressing pressing public need. And, you know, I think that's how a lot of inventions and apps and I mean that anything helpful, you know, starts off by addressing a pressing public need. And, um, and that's what we do, you know, pretty much on a daily basis, but we're trying to change that pressing need today and stretch that out. So, you know, people have a longer thought perspective, you know? Um, so they're, instead of thinking about I'm hungry today, they're thinking about how can I put my life together in a way where I can support myself and, you know, and a family, hopefully. How has, I'm curious, how has, uh, I've been to Colorado Springs a number of times. We, we have some family that uh, lives there, and I think it's a beautiful uh, place to, to live. Obviously, there's so much natural beauty just around that area with Pikes Peak and uh, all the beautiful scenery. But how has the city and private sector partnered with you? Has there been some involvement with others that are taking notice of what you do and the good that you're doing? in the community? Yes, you know, I think both the public and private sector really are um, really are part of our team. And so we we're mainly private, like the, the whole mission is mainly funded with private donations, um, small donations mainly. And then we do have some collaboration with the city and the county. Um, you know, so some cities have a lot of service providers that help the homeless and the chronically homeless, homeless. Um, but here in the Springs, we just have a handful of available services for people. And so we have to work together. Um, and we're, we're a Christian nonprofit and even across spectrums of uh, non-faith-based organizations, we really do all work together well. And so that, that's actually a great thing in this city. Yeah, it's, it, it's incredible to, to hear these stories and, and understand that there's 
people with a big heart that are willing to step in and put both their time and their energy and their creativity into actually building out a program where someone could walk in there. And I'm just curious, how long does it take if someone walks in and, you know, let, let's say they're, they're dealing with an addiction, alcohol or drug addiction, and, but they want to change their life. What kind of time periods are you looking at to get them trained in the culinary arts to the degree that they could go gainfully you know, grab a job, be employed, and have the pride of, of earning money. What kind of time does it take, and what are what are what are some of the struggles in that area? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. There are there are a lot of struggles. The average is about um, twelve months, twelve to seventeen months long. If you're engaged in one of our addiction recovery programs, also, and in that um, twelve to seventeen months, folks are doing fourteen hundred hours of hands-on culinary training. Wow. So that's something like an average of 26 hours a week. And that's with the chefs going over the recipes, having an outline for the day and contributing to the community because that, that kitchen cranks out 200,000 meals a year to folks staying there. It's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the meals are prepared by people who are learning the skills, the core competencies of culinary arts. And so you may start just washing dishes, coming to work, learning how to just um, you know, contribute on the lowest level. And, you know, at, at the end of that training, and you're doing big things, you know, you're making things from scratch and, and something happens when you make your first cream puff and you make like um, chocolate mousse from scratch and, you know, and we don't withhold any of these things. It's a homeless shelter, but we really want to teach people, you know, top-notch cuisine, really. And um, something happens to you, the lights come on in your brain and you say, this is possible. Like I can do this. I can contribute in this way. That's like, um, you know, incredible. You know, when you eat something that is delicious that you made, something happens in your brain. You know. Yeah. No, as a, I'm a bit of a foodie, so I get it. <laughs> if I I like to experiment in the kitchen, and if I make something and it's good, it actually turned out well, there's, you know, really a feeling of accomplishment and pride and mm -hmm. have someone say, oh, that's, that tastes great. That's delicious. Yeah, you get that positive feedback and yeah. it, uh, it means something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Latinos, Italians, we love food. We, yeah. <laughs> we love talking mm -hmm. about food. We love eating it. Well, I think what you're doing is, is fantastic. What, what lessons have you learned as, as you reflect back on uh, the scooping bowl and that product? you know, getting it to market as you reflect on your time in building out this program, which is obviously so valuable to the to the Springs as a community and the, the just everyone, everyone benefits from it. Uh, what have you learned? What can you share? What what are some of the lessons, the things that maybe surprised you that you didn't know and and skill sets that you uh, acquired from that? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I learned a lot, and I think that the key thing for entrepreneurs is um, you either start off being good at handling rejection or you become good at it because, you know, no matter what your product, and, and some people may have some really like, um, you know, unicorn versions of their life where you don't hit that kind of resistance, but I think most entrepreneurial journeys, that's a very reoccurring theme is that, um, that rejection. And that's just part of life, that, that resistance, I think, kind of, um, I learned so much, you know, in just bringing one product to one kind of niche product to the market, 
you know, you learn how to make international deals, how to set up um, manufacturing, how to do legal things, how to just um, confront those, those like natural opposition kind of things. Um, man, it's, it's incredible. And, and how much overlap all of that being able to respond to opposition and rejection, it overlaps 100% in the world of a social enterprise and the world of looking at somebody and saying, uh, you know what, I think you're going to get through this. You know, you're probably tougher than you think. <laughs> and if you give this a shot, there's a chance you might make it. And it's okay if you don't, you know, and that's, um, you know, I, I think that's the secret sauce to entrepreneurs. And I think that's a secret sauce in making a major difference in your life is when you hit up resistance, you know, hey, keep going. Because you're going to be better either way, whether it turns out well or not, you're better because of it. You seem, you strike me as a, a person that would hit a wall and some people might bounce off it and be upset or disappointed or confused. You strike me as a kind of person, Tyler, that hits a wall and you bounce off of it and you're already laughing, dusting yourself off. And <laughs> uh, <looking> uh, <laughs> yeah, eventually I have that response after the disappointment, the confusion. Yeah, eventually I have that response. Well, you're right. Either people come into this world with some kind of, you know, God-given talent to handle rejection, or if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to do something special, build a program, impact people's lives, you've got to figure out how to take a no with a smile on your face and with uh, mm -hmm. grace and elegance, and you've got to, you know, move on to ask again. So you're absolutely right. You become good at handling mm -hmm. rejection. <laughs> yeah, so you, you just become an expert in not giving up. And, you know, and maybe, maybe athletes would say the same thing because, what, you know, what they do takes so much perseverance but um yeah you just become really good at not giving up i'm writing that down by the way i've never heard it said <laughs> that way you become an expert at not giving up <laughs> yeah it, and, and for me that's the only thing i had going for me you know i don't i don't know how to make a product and i don't know how to make deals and you know when, when you make your first phone call to somebody in china and you say hey you know let's let's work together and um what am i thinking Jeez. <laughs> I'm curious that, you know, I hate, you know, shelter facility, the operation that you're with. I don't, I don't know the right terminology because you're doing so many different things. I hate to just call it like one thing, but mm -hmm. that, that impact, I mean, is that something where, Hey, there's something like that in every city in America or. Yeah, there, there there is. And, um, but to the scope that you're doing things. Yeah, it, so every city responds differently and okay. they, have, they have their own unique things. So we, we just went to um, Austin and we were so impressed with what they were doing in Austin and um, in San Antonio. And we, you know, we, we've been to different places and we just feel inspired. And so believe it or not, I think homeless shelters right now are having this um, just blossoming of innovation because we've tried so many things the same way for so many years. And a lot of cities, you'll see the homeless population going up. And in Colorado Springs, uh, for the second year in a row, you're seeing the population of homeless going down. And not just us, but in other cities that are saying, hey, let's take what works in the market 
and let's treat people like um, they have worth and value, just like people are treated in the market, you know? And let's try to work to uh, expose that value any way we can by upskilling people, by, you know, helping people feel confident, helping people get off drugs. And, um, and I, I kind of think the entrepreneurial way to go about things also works in a homeless shelter. Yeah, I was just curious. That, that's great to hear because I, I want to make sure that the things that you guys are doing are being replicated yeah. in other cities. And there's a community for people to learn from each other. Hey, this worked, this didn't work. Here's some curriculum that you may want to, you know, institute as well. And I, I just think that's so important. Um, any, any other entrepreneurial ideas that you've had, big book, small book, uh, <laughs> yeah. that are, that are wow. you know, horizon or, or maybe never came to fruition, but might, might get a revival at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it, if, if you don't have a, a book for small ideas and a book for big ideas, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, what if I had a book for really big ideas? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Wow. <laughs> so th thanks for that. <laughs> That's like, the, um, that's like the Seinfeld episode, a uh, coffee table book about coffee tables. Yeah. Like, man, the simplest things. Like, well, um, I, I do actually have some ideas and, um, and my book of big ideas, you know, has lots of ideas. <laughs> and so, and, you know, what I, what I've learned from bringing a physical product to market is just how hard it is because you have to, you have to also deal with, um, you know, the physical part of things, transporting things, manufacturing things. And um, I think I think the next thing that I'd like to bring is um, sharing this culinary education online. And so with other rescue missions or high schools or at-risk youth or foster situations, um, if you know how to cook, well, that's great. You have, you know, some job opportunities out there. But you also have opportunities to feed your family uh, and to use fresh ingredients and to be healthy and do it economically. And so I think that's the next kind of thing is um, taking this proven model of simple step-by-step -step, um, culinary education that anybody, you know, even you know, coming out of a homeless situation can understand and bringing that online to some sort of online educational platform I think that's kind of the next thing uh, that we're working on. I think it's a fantastic idea. Curious when, you know, with a physical product, did you deal with knockoffs, ripoffs, were things popping up after airing that were a, a blatant ripoff of what you did? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I remember I went to Macy's and Oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say, but anyway, this, this well-known manufacturer had a product. I was like, oh my gosh, that looks a lot, that looks very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so there was that. And then um, there, there was some risk about, um, so during the due diligence portion, like before uh, Lori took over manufacturing, um, she kind of gave some warnings like, hey, if you get any orders that are really large, or any of these, like, here's some criteria of people trying to steal your idea, you know, or whatever, you know, but now it's, she's part of it too, um, you know, to, to look out for because people are going to do knockoffs, like you said, and I think every product suffers some sort of knockoff. Um, and so we really tried to not fill any orders that were larger than 
three units or something, you know, and um, not fulfill any orders that were in certain places where that was more likely to happen. So, yeah, I think that's a real risk. And so I, um, you know, sometimes I'll kind of look online and see if there's a, a, a parallel scooping bowl somewhere on the planet, you know, that's, that has some weird foreign sounding name. Well, not everyone can afford hundreds of thousands of dollars to go after these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, I know. And I think that's, you know, I think sometimes you just kind of weigh the, the pluses and minuses. You know? Last, last question I have, and Joe may have one or two more for you, but last question I have, if you had to look at the impact you're having on people, getting them back into being a productive member of society, what are, what are you doing? What's the, the secret sauce in that that is having a greater impact than maybe the way things were previously done? Hmm. I would say um, the, the secret sauce there, and, and maybe people were doing it in the past, so I don't want to say that you know, we're doing anything that anyone wasn't doing, but um, kind of approaching it as a business and approaching, because if you have a business, you kind of approach all your customers as equally potentially valuable. And so when you're helping people put their lives together, um, that's, our, that's our main motto is that, you know, we, we believe people are made in the image of God equally. And so we don't discount anybody. And any one of our clients, could theoretically potentially be a donor in the future. And our goal is to help them be that, you know? Well, I think what you're doing is uh, more than fantastic. I hope that uh, people listening uh, that are interested in being uh, integral uh, in the community and, and maybe looking for some very tough solutions with homeless problems in um, in, in, in different communities around the country. And I, I hope they're, uh, they're inspired by you. I know I am, uh, occasionally, uh, Beth and I, uh, will through our church, will reach out and be part of community efforts, uh, not spearheading them, but just being hands that show up. <laughs> well, and so that's one way, not everyone, Tyler, you know, could put together a program and, and lead it. Thank God, there, there are people like you, but almost anyone could get involved. And I, I just wonder if someone's listening and they want to chat with you or learn more about how they can emulate or replicate this in, in their community, or if people in the Springs that happen to be listening to this want to get involved, how do people... Or just anyone listening around the country that wants to make a small donation to let us know yeah, about that. Absolutely. Yeah, um, that would be fantastic. I would direct anybody to um, check out the springsrescuemission.org or even if somebody wants to learn more about training program or different, um, you know, enterprise philosophy, you know, if somebody has a small um, rescue mission or a small ministry or just anything and they want to take it to the next level and they want to bring um, kind of the strengths of the market you know, to their ministry, like what, what to do there. They can reach out to me at Tyler P at springsrescuemission.org. Awesome. Well, we so appreciate you being here, um, sharing uh, some great information about your journey, about the Shark Tank, about the impact you're having now, and uh, just such a 
such an awesome person. So we, uh, we so appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right. It was my pleasure, guys. Thank you. What an awesome interview with Tyler. He's just such a nice guy, so sharp, so purpose-driven. It was a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. So a couple lessons that I took away from this conversation. Um, You know, first of all, either starting off as an entrepreneur by being really good at handling rejection or just becoming good at it we get rejected all the time. Anytime we pitch our product or try to sell our product and we're not able to close the deal, it's rejection. If we're trying to raise money and someone doesn't want to invest in us, it's rejection. If we tell someone our idea or our thought or what we want to build and they're either lukewarm to the idea or just straight up don't like it, it's rejection. And You either become really good at handling rejection and have really thick skin or you're in for a lot of pain, even more pain. So uh, develop the ability to handle rejection and you can laugh it off. You can get angry and say, hey, they're wrong and I'm going to prove them wrong. Whatever coping mechanism works for you, but make sure that you're able to process um, rejection in a really positive way that allows you to move forward, that allows you to have short-term thinking, that allows it to not bother you because there are a lot of people that hold on to that rejection and uh, it ruins their day if they hear no. Um, Just understand as an entrepreneur, you can hear no all the time over and over and over again. It's just part of the business that we're in. A couple other things, you know, just the impact the shelter has had on him in general, I, I just think it's so important and it's so important to put ourselves in an environment that's going to make us happy, that we're going to thrive in, that's going to fulfill our passions, that's going to allow us to utilize our strength. Um, and, and the last thing was really just the, you know, just the power of getting people back into society, uh, treating people equally and really approaching all of this like a business. And I think that, you know, sometimes people, I think we have a tendency sometimes to not understand how lessons in one sector apply to lessons in another sector. And, you know, in Tyler's situation, it was, okay, let's just take some of the best practices of business and apply them here. And what does a shelter have to do with a business? Well, a lot. And there's a lot of similarities. And one of my pet peeves when I'm coaching or talking to entrepreneurs is just around this idea of, oh, you don't understand my industry or, oh, we're just a nonprofit or, oh, we're B2B. So you know, like, hold on a second. If someone has an idea for you, don't dismiss it because of where that idea comes from or where that example is pulled from. Can a nonprofit learn something from how Amazon, a multi-billion dollar company, conducts business? Absolutely. To dismiss it and say, oh, well, nonprofits can only learn from nonprofits or uh, B2B companies can only learn from B2B companies. That's completely wrong. And so it's important to be able to learn from all different styles of organizations. So another great episode, great entrepreneur. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.